0: Hello, and welcome to McGuire Woods Edible Bites, where we bring you bite-sized updates on all things happening in the life sciences space, including cannabis, hemp, CBD, and other emerging markets. Our updates are quick and packed with key industry developments that you can watch during your morning coffee, while having lunch, or on a brain break. We're excited to discuss today's food for thought. Let's get noodling. Please remember that Edible Bites podcast is for informational food for that purposes only. These updates should not be construed as legal advice in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Please be sure to consult with an attorney before being fearless with any legal decisions. In addition, we note marijuana and other controlled substances are classified as Schedule One by the US Drug Enforcement Agency. Any content contained or discussed herein is not intended to provide legal advice to assist with the violation of any state or federal law.
1: Hi, and welcome to another edition of McGuire Woods Edible Bites, where we're talking all things cannabis and life sciences. Today, I am joined by my trusty colleague, Royce Stephen A. And it is just the two of us today. And we're gonna do a quick update on what we're seeing in cannabis litigation and cannabis enforcement because there has just been a lot of things going on out there and we're going to hit on a couple of the high level things today. So what we're going to cover for today, we're going to talk about some constitutional challenges that have gone on in a couple of different states related to state residency license requirements for license. Um, Royce is going to take the lead on this, but we're going to talk about the Wild West and some craziness that's going on in the state of Oklahoma for their license process and some challenges there. We're going to hit on a couple zoning challenges that have come up with some really interesting outcomes that um, I'm honestly curious to see sort of how things start developing after this particular ruling. Uh, We're going to look at some environmental compliance enforcement that we're starting to see. Uh, And then we're gonna end on a high note uh, and just cover the ever popular, um, always changing Delta 8. There's some updates there, both on the federal and state So We wanna make sure uh, we keep you updated on that. All right, so with that, we will get going. First thing that we just wanna talk about is two recent decisions addressing challenges to, uh, like I said, the state's residency requirements for cannabis licenses. And of course, the each state had completely opposite results. Um, so in Maine, there was a constitutional challenge to that state's licensing requirement, which basically says if you're gonna get a license um, to be a dispensary in Maine, you have to meet a residency requirement. And I will note on this: a um, couple episodes ago, we did a talk on Oregon's psilocybin law, um, and we mentioned that you know we we see that law and likely other state laws sort of following. Oregon's psilocybin law has a similar residency requirement, so interesting on that front, but here um, the challenge in maine the court did rule it was unconstitutional for regulators to exclude out-of-state companies from operating in the state and just to touch on this too as well if you are an out-of-state company and you want to come into maine um you would have to partner or find some way to you know get that residency requirement the second challenge was in the state of Washington, which, like I said, had the complete opposite result. Here in this challenge, um, in sort of an interesting twist, uh, the judge here said, uh, I'm basically not going to rule on this, even though these dispensaries are completely legal in the state, and I could probably look at the law. I'm not going to, because I'm not getting involved at this when technically the business is breaking the law at the federal level. So now we have two states with completely opposite results for the residency requirements. You know, we'll have to see what happens in other states as maybe more of these come up. But I think the key point with this is if you're thinking about going into a state, you got to think about the residency requirements. We should check what lawsuits are going on. Um, But this is an important part in addition to, you know, typical stuff you would think about, right? License caps. Is there um, any change of ownership requirements, et cetera? Um, So we wanted to just flag that and break. uh, I don't know if you've got additional thoughts on how to think about this.
2: Yeah. I mean, you're basically asking a state Supreme Court to, start to play piecemeal with the the federal constitution which is essentially like you've got you know um full faith and credit you've got you know commerce you've got other issues that are coming up here and you're saying you know let's focus on you know ensuring that you know the state doesn't prevent you know, out-of-state residents from also taking advantage of the state's clauses. You know, maybe a restraint on trade or, or commerce. And but then on the other end, you have a Controlled Substances Act that that was, you know, lawfully passed by the U.S. government in the 1970s, and you know, is has supremacy to it. And you're just going to ignore that, which. I mean, I guess arguably could be a restraint to some extent on, extent on commerce, but you're gonna focus on these micro nuance issues. So it's, you know, I, personally, I think that I side with the main court, but I also see the, the court in Olympia, Washington saying, you know, we, we really don't want to get into this right now. And the hesitancy of them to open up a Pandora's box of, uh, you know, requiring multiple clerks to go through constitutional issues and writing opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, so interesting state level development and we'll have to see how this plays out in other states. Ray, right. Pick it up with uh the state level craziness going on in Oklahoma. What do we need to know about here?
2: Okay, I'm just going to give my like one I do not believe trademark or copyright way <laughs> of expressing this Oklahoma, not singing the rest of of whatever it is I was gonna sing. Um, So, you know, we don't really talk about Oklahoma a lot ever, Um, unless you're like watching a certain show on a certain streaming service that has to do with tigers. Um, I didn't really think much about Oklahoma in terms of cannabis. I don't think Kate did either. It just wasn't on our radar. It's not what our clients are asking for. It's It's a great state, but it's peripheral to where a lot of the cannabis action at the higher investment level is taking place. Well, be that as it may, Oklahoma is important for many other reasons. And, um, you know, on the next slide, we're gonna see, you know, some things are really not okay, and okay, or Oklahoma. And, you know, why is that? What, what, why are we focusing? on a peripheral medical only state, you know, where, you know, this is not Illinois, it's not New York, it's not California, it's not some of the bigger players here, it's Oklahoma. And the reason we're looking at it is because each state that has approved medical marijuana has done it in its own unique way. And in 2018, Oklahoma approved it on state question 788. Which was largely written by, you know, as it maybe should be, a pro medical marijuana group, and it was approved through ballot initiatives. Um, and that brings with it its challenges because, you know, ballot initiatives sometimes can be really well drafted, and other times they can have inherent qualities within them from their drafters that don't necessarily take into account well what do we do after we win the revolution um (laughs) and and that's you know that's regulation and so you know what do we have going on in oklahoma right now Well, the first thing we've got going on and and then we'll go back to the micro nuance level what the, the inherent real problem is is we've got an april 2021 state level class action filed to stop uh you know the The Oklahoma medical marijuana regulators from essentially mandating compliance to metric and for everyone who knows metric is the big brother out there who has a a commanding stake in seed to sale track and trace uh, compliance Uh, it's an interface you go in there as a dispenser you type in your your track and trace info the metrics metric is sent to the um state cannabis control boards of the state states like illinois don't mandate metric Uh, other states don't either You're, you're allowed to choose a compliant vendor but a lot of states will require you to sign up with metric and use metric well as we will get into that didn't really sit right with the dispensaries in oklahoma of which there are likely more dispensaries on some counts than agricultural operations of non-cannabis nature in the state. So the dispensary's need said, we're not going to allow the mandate of metric. State question 788, uh, you know, as approved, and then state law as approved does not contain clauses that require a concise, comprehensive seed to sale tracking system. So
1: no, right here, so, I'm moving oh.
2: to the next slide, which is right a big tornado. The tornado. Yes. So what's the present situation? It's an Oklahoma twister, metaphorically, not that we tornadoes are very dangerous and we take them seriously, but it's the best metaphor to describe the chaos that is ensuing when you don't have a proper seed-to-sale tracking system and the black market can start putting product on the shelves. Um so the next slide is the state sign of Oklahoma that says the Wild West of Weed, which is really where we're at. And then the next slide shows a picture of Ozzy Osbourne from you know, his, his post-Black Sabbath days. You know, We're talking about the, you know, um, the, the albums afterwards and um, it's kind of him in his 80s uh, garb. And that kind of describes the medical marijuana program. It, it's absolute chaos in the state. Um, and it's chaos for a couple other reasons too. Um, when 788 was passed, and, and subsequent regulations and laws that came after it, there really wasn't the concept within 788 was very much anti, it was very much pro free market. And and be that as it may, there's some challenges there when dealing with cannabis. And and one of the drafters, this guy Chip Paul, said, you know we're going to let the market, this is on drafting 788, he said, we're going to let the market determine the number of licenses. You know, do you limit donut shops in your town? We're going to, you know, the market determines how many donut shops there needs to be. That's the same way we're going to do marijuana. And, you know, in the words of Dragon Ball Z, the power level is over 9,000. There are over 9,000 licenses issued in Oklahoma. There's absolutely no way for the regulators to enforce Uh, it's it's an absolute free market there is illegal operations semi-compliant operations fully compliant operations just an absolute eclectic variety uh there are as many dispensaries as there probably are truck stops in oklahoma and and, mm -hmm. sorry
1: riss i'm jumping in for one second here i mean we're going to talk in a minute on some other enforcement but like to that point when you have that many licenses you can be enforcing basically nothing and then yeah. i get the free market point and certainly there are other states that are in the news where there's been a lot of issues with corruption in issuing the license process so maybe this was one attempt uh you know like you said just we're gonna let the free market take you here but i think there's a real balance to be thought through as to sort of where the middle ground is for the whole license process. I'm sorry,
2: I, yeah. I didn't mean really to totally no, interrupt I, you, but <laughs> No, it's it's I mean it's a good point. And you got to think about it as like, you know, we we've got large multi-state operators which run a very compliant operation, have compliance down pat, bring a bring a quality product on the market. You know, not saying smaller operations can't do that too, but what is the incentive for Larger, more compliant operators, or what is the incentive for someone to risk the amount of money that they need to get a good operation in Oklahoma? When you know there's no zoning prohibitions in Oklahoma, you cannot zone cannabis at all. Like you just right. set up a shop. There's no there's a there's twenty five thousand dollar fee to get a license. You do have a residency requirement in Oklahoma of seventy five percent of owners of the dispensary or, or operation need to be Oklahoma residents, but the chaos is preventing, you know, effective enforcement of the regulatory regime there and is allowing various actors of various sophistication levels to get in there. And at the end of the day, that could really jeopardize the movement and and, and how cannabis can be sold and marketed in a compliant way in Oklahoma that's not going to, you know, result in backlash. and you know we're already seeing some backlash september 17th uh you know very recently group of oklahoma industry organizations you know a whole bunch of folks got together and, and you know essentially asked the state regulators stop issuing the licenses and i wouldn't care so much about a letter from you know people that that have various opinions on the legality of cannabis except that those individuals that signed the letter have very close ties to Oklahoma government, have lobbying capacity. And, you know, we could start seeing a pretty interesting showdown here between those that are pro-cannabis in Oklahoma, anti-cannabis in Oklahoma, and there's the potential for regression. Um, And and that's what we never want to see. So, um, you know, what are the lessons from Oklahoma? And uh, the, the slide here is uh, a guy standing on a raft with a tiger and, and there's water and a sonic, because there's lost sonics in Oklahoma, I assume. But um, lessons from Oklahoma are, there's a balance between complete chaos and you know, the anarcho-capitalistic world that, that some people would like to have with cannabis and the, the complete control system, uh, which we see in other states, there's a balance. Oklahoma is not anywhere near that balance point. And if you have more questions about Oklahoma law uh, or Oklahoma regulations, you can contact Kate Hardy and I. We also have a colleague who's licensed in Oklahoma, Alex Shipley in the Chicago office, who's more than help, happy to help you with your Oklahoma issues and talk about what it was like to grow up in Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> crickets.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you just, you just mentioned um, Oklahoma with this life insurance doesn't have any zoning. Um, there's a lot of states that do have zoning. And one of the things we're gonna talk about real quick next is a zoning challenge in the state of Massachusetts, which I think if I'm remembering correctly, Massachusetts is one of those states where because of the different zoning requirements, yep. there's a pretty significant concentration of dispensaries kind of in certain areas. And then there's a whole mess yep. of the state that has nothing. Um, yep. So again, that's kind of a different, you know, you got Oklahoma where you could have it on every corner. You have other states where, you know, every town or local um, city is going to maybe have a different view. But in Massachusetts. Initially, the law required that dispensaries be not-for-profit. And so there's a dispensary that opened up, not-for-profit. A few years later, things move along. Uh, The state says, you know what, okay, fine, you know, you can be a for-profit entity. We're not going to have that restriction anymore. So this dispensary says, okay, good, I'm going to, you know, I'm still early stages, but I want to be a for-profit, so I'm going to do that. But the town where the dispensary was located still had the specific rules that said, no, you have to be nonprofit. So of course, um, because now everybody, there's just so much litigation and stuff going on here, um, there was a lawsuit. And um, the interesting outcome here was that the state ruled, no, 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 uh, state law is actually going to preempt your local ordinance So it's fine for this dispensary to be for profit, which to me is super interesting because what does that mean now for every single ordinance that's out there and where is the balance? Because a lot of these places I know, you know, they take it pretty seriously. They don't want dispensaries Mm -hmm. near schools. They, you know, you want to be thoughtful. There's 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 smells there's traffic you know just traffic in and out of the store there's a lot of things to think about but i thought this was you know, a pretty interesting uh ruling and we'll have to see how that impacts you know other ordinances
2: yeah and you know on that point kate like the nonprofit, profit like i get that some dispensaries still identify with the nonprofit status but it's really kind of just a holdover from the early days of cannabis where they were really kind of established as like, you know, patient betterment organizations, buyers clubs, so to speak, and the the shift out of that. And these town ordinances, you know, in particular in like Illinois can just be draconian. They can be absolutely absurd with what's required. And, you know, are really the, the nuance and whims of, you know, the local council whereas you know the state law is a little bit more streamlined and that that variability can impact business and impact profit and it it increases compliance costs on an operation so uh yeah we welcome this decision
1: yeah well and as we know from doing our diligence and transaction work sometimes even digging these ordinances out can be trying to find a needle in a haystack but they're there um and the expectation is compliance. All right, so now we're going to move and talk about a couple things that we caught as we're tracking all of this in the industry of enforcement of compliance with environmental laws. This came out of the Santa Barbara County District Attorney, and I, I, don't, I don't have the background as to exactly how this came out, but there were two cases very close to each other Um, where there were allegations that the operations were not violating any specific cannabis requirement for the state, but were actually violating um, the state's fish and game code violations. So more on the environmental side, Um, one was for a grower that removed vegetation um, from a stream and graded a road through there was allegations of pollution, et cetera. And in this instance, the company ended up paying $40,000 to you know, resolve those issues, which can be a lot, uh, I feel like in this space. I mean, that's not an insubstantial amount of money for a lot of people. Uh, the second one, same thing. Again, there was road and grading in an area where, according to the documents on the district attorney's website, there were hop houses, underground piping, uncompacted soil, an electrical generator, and some other things. Uh, and this company paid fifty thousand dollars in civil fines. So, again, when when we saw this, we thought it was really worth bringing up um, because there's so many things to think about in the cannabis space. There's so many different requirements that you're trying to keep up with. You know, just in producing, like Ruth was talking about. You know the the seed tracking, your labeling, um, testing all of your products. And I don't think the sort of environmental or other things always come up unless it's sort of specifically housed in the state cannabis requirements, because we've definitely seen some there. So wanted to note this, found it kind of interesting, definitely something to keep in mind.
2: Yeah, and it's also just a really good point how, like, you know, on your deal diligence or or when you're looking to acquire or merge into another operation, like, please do not shortchange the environmental compliance report, environmental review. Like, you know, these things are all extremely important and, you know, go to, to the overall integrity of the operation
1: right well another one we've seen come up right royce is compliance with the um state alcohol regulations.
2: yes Um, yes yeah
1: and that is not necessarily making drinks but that's using alcohol in processing
2: yeah and that that requires its own uh wonderfully complex state level analysis on change of ownership uh so for that you know, it's also not only do you need to be a cannabis lawyer, food and drug lawyer, but you need to understand a little bit about ABV laws.
1: Yep. Yep. Lots of, lots of fun things. All right. So we wanted to, like I said, end on a high note and cover what we're seeing is the latest and greatest in Delta 8, which is um, all of the range right now and everywhere. And I think there's a lot of Mixed information, and I, I, I will say, you know, we're going to go through our things here, but I do feel like uh, to this point, a lot of people have very strong views one way or the other as to whether or not Delta 8 is in fact legal if it's a derivative of hemp. Um, but the FDA and the CDC recently published uh, specific health warnings about Delta 8. Uh, like any other sort of CBD cannabis, well, not cannabis, because we've got uh, cannabinoid in FDA approved drug products, but nothing outside of the drug approval process has been approved by FDA for the market. Uh, and what was interesting is the main focus here was all of the adverse events reports that have come up, and these have come up through state poison control centers and also the National Poison Control Center. In the last six months, there have been 600 plus reports of um, various issues that have ranged from uh, like we have on the slide, you know, different harmful chemicals that are in the product that people didn't know about, uh, people saying they didn't realize, you know, that they were getting Delta-8. Um, More concerning uh, is that children have gotten a hold of this when Delta-8 is in some sort of gummy or other type of format that's easy for a kid to mistake uh, for candy. Um, And there have been quite a few hospitalizations related to this. And again, you know, we know here state cannabis boards can regulate Delta-8. We're going to get to that in a second. there's delta eight that you can say is derived from marijuana there's delta eight that you can say is derived from hemp um there's also different ways of processing delta eight in addition to putting you know other chemicals in it are you using some sort of other process to kind of jump to get to the delta eight that's also is problematic and this again i think is it's just not regulated so there are people out there who yeah. are doing it really well and then there are people out there who are making a buck um yeah
2: and, and, and it's like i'd say to any compliant cannabis operation you know just stop and pause and think about having delta 8 you know in your shop is is the business decision you know to make maybe it is maybe it isn't but you know when we've got adverse event reports we've got instances of children consuming we have you know and you know if you're a regulated shop you've already got a really good game going on is delta 8 the product that your customers want or you want to introduce that you're then going to have to pull carry about risk moving forward think harder about your suppliers maybe there's a business decision to be made there and the risk is worth it but it, it is a product that has a cloud over it right now that you know, other legalized products don't have on top of the federal considerations and do your own homework. Listening to someone saying that Delta 8 does not violate the, the Analogs Act or the Controlled Substances Act is, is not, you know, it means you need to do your own homework on it and not just take that at, at a grain of salt. The law is exceptionally nuanced.
1: Yes, and as I have not seen any recent updates, uh, but last check and DEA is still definitely taking the position that Delta 8 is a Schedule 1 controlled substance. Um, and it's illegal, full stop, doesn't matter how you get there. And we've seen over the last five, six months, definitely some states have gotten out there and basically uh, legislated that Delta 8 is not legal and you can't sell it Uh, Here's one example where the Washington State uh, Liquor and Cannabis Board also jumped on the bandwagon, and I found this one to be interesting again because this announcement says um, license holders cannot produce or process Delta-8, and you also can't buy or sell hemp-derived Delta-8. So I feel like they were trying to sort of cover the gamut of different ways that you might end up with Delta-8 and kind of trying to put the kibosh on it. Um, And then this bulletin that came out pretty recently also addresses, you know, how they're planning to enforce it. So I think, you know, point there, check the state law if you're thinking about it. I mean, even if you're operating a dispensary, um, you know, in a state and you're licensed to do that, definitely want to keep a tab on what, whatever particular board is running those licenses and what they have to say. Um, and certainly I would say Royce, I don't know if you agree, uh, kind of hard no on any other products outside of the Mm -hmm. cannabis license regime if you're looking to sell any type of Delta 8 product.
2: Yeah, and and you know we're also going to get the question. Well, what about CBG and what about all these others? And and I think I think Delta eight in Washington State looks like a almost a hard no right now, unless you can um, magically make it appear out of thin air. Um, but you know the other question is with the other cannabinoid groups. Uh, approach cautiously. You know what one state does, the other states are lazy and will follow if they think that it's in their interest to to crack down on what seems to be a risk area but you know it doesn't mean that the other cannabinoids in the absence of law it doesn't mean a regulator can't figure out a way to regulate there is no such thing as like the tax loophole in in controlled substances you can't just hold up a sheet of paper and say well you know my analysis here means that great go to court and defend it and and you know or defend it from a jail cell Um, that's the challenge that we face in this industry is that these arguments and these loopholes, although they can be good and there's a place for them, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free call, you know, to, to begin an operation and invest substantial revenue behind it without fully appreciating the risk. Yes,
1: yeah, exactly. All right. And that wraps us up for today. Just to recap on what we've covered for today, I think main takeaway, enforcement and or litigation um, can come from a lot of different areas. We've covered, you know, general state issues, local zoning issues. Uh, Everybody's aware of the FDA and CDC at this point. We've got that, um, you know, separate environmental agencies, right? The Uh, district attorney general is looking at enforcing environmental laws something to think about and then lastly um, for those of you who are interested in getting more frequent updates than what we've got on our edible bites video um, we now have a bi-weekly email update called in the weeds that you can go to our McGuire woods cannabis website go down to the insights section of that click on in the weeds. You can subscribe in our, in the weeds updates. We cover general highlights in the industry. We cover what's happening at the state level. Um, we're also just trying to track some of the more interesting transactions that are taking place in the state. So encourage you to take a look at that and subscribe. Um, we're also now on right Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spotify uh,
2: you, um, podcast, Spotify, I don't know what else. Um, we're missing one. <laughs> but yeah, those are the two that matter though if or you don't. if you
1: if you can't <laughs> listen um, to or you can't watch the video, feel free to listen in your car. Uh, and you can get all the updates that way. And I think the one we were missing, right, is iTunes.
2: So iTunes, all the right. so
1: That one matters too. iPod. Yeah. <laughs> you know,
2: iPhone. Wait, no one has an iPod anymore, or do they? You know, Apple TV, iPhone, iPad, uh, your Mac. Like, it works. Listen to it. We've got good graphics. People think you're cool if you flash it on the train. Um, for those that ride public transit, so you know, it's it's a winning situation.
1: Yep, we've got you covered for all the key updates, but we appreciate your time, Royce, as always. Thank you, uh, and until the next time, y'all can noodle on that. Thanks.